Good morning, everybody. Hey, as we get going here this morning, I'd like for you to consider this mission statement of a very well-known university. And the, the mission statement is this, to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, I tell you, that is a great mission statement, isn't it? I mean, here's this university that says, hey, when it's all said and done, when your time here at this school is over, what we're really, uh, what's really we're passionate about is your formation as a Christian. This university with this great mission statement was founded back in 1636, and it, it employed exclusively Christian professors. They emphasized Christian character formation. Um, all of their practices were rooted soundly in, in God's Word. And it was the epitome of academic excellence and Christian distinction. Would it surprise you that the university I'm talking about is none other than Harvard? Harvard Unit. Did you know that Harvard started out as a school that was to equip ministers to go out and share the good news? Now, now today, Harvard is one of the most prestigious universities that you're going to find anywhere but it clearly no longer resembles the vision of its founders. It took about 80 years, as I understand the history of the school, it took about 80 years for them to drift off of that foundation. There was some New England pastors that looked at Harvard, and they were, they were not happy about what they considered the school becoming too secularized. So they went out and started their own school. And in 1701 is when that started. And, and they set out on a mission to equip ministers. And this would be the school that stayed true to God's word. Um, there was a man by the name of Elihu Yale who gave a, a lot of donations to get this school going. And in 1718, they named the school after him. And that school is still very well known today. It's known as Yale University. Have you heard of that? But like, you know, Yale, like Harvard, over the course of time, um, it, uh, it drifted towards something else. And Yale today does not resemble the foundations laid, the beginning of the school, it's not a reflection any longer of what its founders envisioned. You know, at the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, and that's hard to imagine, you know, 350 years, but they had a party to celebrate it, and uh, Stephen Muller was there. He was, the, he was the former president of John Hopkins University, and he said this. He said, the bad news is that the university had become godless. That's quite an observation, isn't it? Larry Summers is the, uh, was the 27th president at Harvard, and he led the school from 2001 to 2006, and, and he acknowledged this. He said, things divine have been central neither to my professional nor my personal life. Now think about what he's saying here. He says, things divine, you know, it's godliness, holiness, the things of God, spirituality, those things. They have not been central at all to my professional life nor my personal life. In other words, his life has nothing in common. His leadership of the school has nothing in common with the foundations of the school and why it was even started. Now, please know in telling you this, I have absolutely no beef with Harvard or Yale universities. They're fine educational institutions. I am not trying to, uh, you know, uh, I don't have an axe to grind towards them, not in the least. But I only share that with you because it's their own history. They don't deny it. But I share it with you as an example 
of how there were some founders who were unmistakably clear that they were pursuing academic excellence and Christian formation. And the way the schools look like today are a far cry from that. And you might say, and I think it's a fair assumption, that both schools over time slowly drifted off of its foundations. And I would argue this, that the church in America is in no less danger of doing the same thing. I look around the church today, and I don't mean just new life. I'm talking about the church in America. We are a body of believers. We're a gathering of Christians, but we are a part of a larger body of believers, the church. And I look at the church today, and I'm somebody that stays current on trends. I stay current on thinking, and I I follow what denominations are saying about these subjects and what pastors and bishops and and reverends or whatever you want to call them are writing about certain subjects and how churches are being led. I pay attention to that stuff. And there's enough there to draw the simple conclusion that the church is very much in danger in many aspects of drifting. Now, I say that by in no means do I, do I intend to lump all Christians together in the same basket. I'm not saying every church is this way. I'm not saying all Christians are this way. I'm, I, there are plenty of solid churches out there, plenty of solid Christians. I'm not lumping them all together. But I am saying, and I tried to illustrate last week, that we are seeing, in my opinion, a church that seems to be drifting along with the world towards the secular, and then we see the world that is beginning to creep into the church and many of the ways the world thinks is finding acceptance inside the church today. And I wonder, why is that? Why is it that there are some things that many Christians um, are finding more and more acceptable today that Christians a few generations ago would have thrown up at? Why is that? The only explanation is because the church itself, in many respects, is drifting towards the secular as well. Then they're drifting away from its foundations, and, and, and it's alarming, to be quite honest with you. You know, what are we drifting towards? What are we drifting from? These are just a few of the questions that I'd like for us to ask and answer um, in this series that we started last week that I'm just simply calling Drifting. And I want to say it again that I myself am squarely committed along with the elders and the staff of this church and many people who call New Life this their home to be the kind of church that God would be proud of. To be the kind of church that God would say, yes, that is what I envision. Yes, that is my desire. Yep, you are about my goals. A church that could be just simply described by any of us is, yes, we are a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. That's what we, our aim is to be and to stay. But the temptation, and it's a very real temptation, is for Christians to drift away from God's vision, to drift off the foundations that the Lord himself and the apostles had laid for us. And we even see this played out in the Bible. The apostles warned about it, and we looked at some examples last week. We looked at Mark chapter 11. I even asked you to mark your Bible, where Jesus went up into the temple courts, and he took one look around and saw that the temple and all those there, it was such a far cry from what God envisioned, and he cleared the temple. He even made a whip, and he drove everybody out, and he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. In other words, Jesus' point, and and, and what we take away from that is is Jesus like, listen, my house is going to be this. 
but you've turned it into this. And this is the same kind of danger that we are facing. This is the parallel that I see with Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus would say, it was this. And it's supposed to be this, but you've turned it into this. Now, as we looked at last week, we know that uh, our, uh, our bodies today are the actual temples of the Holy Spirit now. There is no physical building that, uh, that serves that purpose, but we ourselves, as believers, those that have been marked by the Holy Spirit, God dwells within us. And Paul said so clearly in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's Spirit, Spirit dwells in your midst? So when we think about our congregation, we are a gathering of temples, if you will. We all house the Holy Spirit, and we come together in worship and many things. But since you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, can I walk you down a hypothetical idea? Hypothetically speaking, if Jesus were to walk up into the temple courts of your life today, would he lock arms with you in worship, or would he make a whip? Because there are some things in God's house that should not be there. Every believer's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That faith between you and God is a very personal thing. And that's why many of our statements and many of our beliefs are, are laced with these kinds of thoughts. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God dwells. Do you know him personally? We're not talking about just coming to church. We're not talking about just saying the right words. We're talking about do you really know him? Does he dwell in you? And do you see yourself as a housing of God? Temple of the Holy Spirit. So we believers make up the church, and we are a body of believers. We're all like-minded. We are not the only believers for sure. We don't claim to be the only Christians. You know, we're part of the larger church, but we are living out our faith together. Every single one of us has this personal walk with the Lord. The Lord dwells with us and we with him. And uh, we live that out together in an expression called the church. And that's why the church can never just be a building and our, our identity can never be wrapped up in these four walls. Or one, two, three, eight walls or whatever we got in here. This building could be knocked over tomorrow, but the church would still be here because God dwells within our temple here. So we gather together, and we together are on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And that's why one of the many reasons the Bible speaks so much about unity and sticking together and standing firm in our beliefs. It was Paul who said in Ephesians 4, verse 3 through 5, he said to the church, hey, make every effort in other words work hard at this to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace make every effort why because there's one body one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all we are on a mission together in unity, believing the same thing. That's what it's supposed to be. And the church is an amazing expression of this kind of unity until it's not. The church is an amazing expression of this kind of unity in the Lord until the Lord looks at his church 
And he says, it's supposed to be this, but you've turned it into this. What causes this kind of drifting? What causes us to go from this to this? What, what is the temptation? What is the journey? Why do Christians seem to drift away from this one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father in all? Why does it seem like, going back to my illustration last week, why does it appear that the world is creeping into the church? Why? I would contend that one of the major causes of Christians, and then by extension, the church, one of the major causes for churches that drift is when Christians forget this one very important thing. It's when Christians forget that we have good news to share. Now, I want you to follow this line of thinking with me because you may not be tracking with me completely. But I'm going to tell you, yes, why do churches drift? And what is one of the root causes for drifting? I'm here to tell you from my point of view, one of the major reasons for why Christians drift is when we forget that we have good news to share. Friends, when we forget that we have good news to share, it opens the door from, for all other kinds of things. You know, show me a church that has drifted into all kinds of worldliness, and I'll show you a church that at some point in its history forgot that they had good news to share. If this was a sports world, they would simply say it like this. They took their eye off the ball. I think a gut check question or a series of questions that we should ask ourselves today and we should confirm together would, we, would be this. Do we still believe here in this place that the good news matters? Do we believe that? Do we believe that it's the best news that the world could ever be told? Do we really believe that Christ is the difference? You know, as I examine, like I was telling you, as I examine these trends and popular thinking uh, among throughout Christian world, um, I can just tell you that I am seeing less and less emphasis on the good news of the gospel, and I am seeing more and more emphasis on things like social justice and equality and good deeds and inclusion and freedom from oppression. The conversation is shifting from good news to these other things. And I'm not saying that those things are bad in any way. I'm not saying that they're not important, not at all. But I am telling you this, is that if you desire freedom from the oppressed, if you seek out social justice, if you want equality, if inclusion is something deeply important to you, then you better stick to sharing the good news of the gospel because that is the only cure and answer to those topics. You better stick to the core of Christianity, that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose to life, thus opening the door of forgiveness to anyone who would call upon it in the Lord's name. Open the door for any single person to be reconciled to God. You want social justice, quality, you want to talk about good deeds and you want to talk about inclusion and freedom of the oppressed and all those other important subjects. Don't drift off of God's word. 
Don't drift off the good news of the gospel. Yet, it seems to appear that a number of churches, and of course, I'm not lumping them all together, but a number of churches and a number of Christians are consumed with these things. While at the same time de-emphasizing the value of the good news. What I mean by it is like, like hey, we're a church and we're together. We're going to tackle this important subject of equality. And we as a church, we're on a mission about inclusion. And you know what? We're going to be all about helping people. And, and, and churches can rally behind these topics that are socially relevant and important to non-Christians as well. And they do so by leaving behind the only thing that really is the answer. And that's Jesus. And what's happening is you're forming congregations of people that are on missions of good things. But they've left behind the only good thing that really matters. It's like, we'll get to Jesus here later. And friends, uh, I see that. I see it a lot. That one of the major causes of drifting. And just following wherever the secular movement of the day takes you is when we forget that we have good news to share. And that's why we even exist. In John chapter 6, we read about an amazing miracle that Jesus performed. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I'm going to go quick. All the scripture will be on the screens behind me. But in John chapter 6, we read this amazing miracle where Jesus was with thousands of people. Nobody had any food. Just between all of them, just a few loaves of bread and fish. And those of you that are familiar with the story, you know what happened. Jesus took the bread and fish. He prayed over it. And he started to distribute it, and it just kept it going and growing and multiplying. And thousands of people, the Bible says 5,000, were fed that day. And the disciples went out, and they picked up all the scraps that were left over. And do you remember how many basketfuls of bread they collected? Twelve. More than what they even started with. And if you keep reading John chapter 6, you're going to read about that amazing miracle. You're going to read that Jesus and his disciples, over the night, they crossed over to the Sea of Galilee to another town a couple miles away. And the very next day, all of these people came back. Some of them were a part of that massive group that Jesus fed the day before, and others had heard about it. And so they came from other surrounding towns, and they all converged on this place. And they're like, where is Jesus? We're hungry. Are we going to get to see this multiplication of bread again? Let's see. Where's Jesus? And they're disappointed to find that he was gone. So they figure out really quick where he went, and they follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, and they meet up with him, and they're like, hey, here we are. Where's dinner? And Jesus offers them what I'm going to call a soft rebuke. I've seen Jesus' hard rebuke. This isn't a hard This is a soft rebuke. And he says to them in John chapter 6, verse 26, he said to this group of people, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're looking for food. And then he said in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, I'm going to encourage you. Go back and read all of John 6. I can't read the whole thing for you today, but I will summarize what happens next. 
Jesus engages this group in a, in a, in a lengthier discussion about their desire for food. And, and they talk about different things, and they want Jesus to give them food, and they want him to show them miracles so that they would believe. And they even bring up Moses, who led the Israelites out of slavery. And during that whole process, they said, wasn't it God that dropped manna or bread from heaven? And didn't God do this? Why can't you do this for us? And Jesus said in verse 32 to this group, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who's given the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Do you think they understood he was talking about himself? And then they said, sir, always give us this bread. They're hungry. Satisfy this craving that I have right now. Give us that. Make us feel better. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What's Jesus' point? He's like, I and what I have to offer is more important and more valuable and more satisfying than what you could ever put inside your bellies today. Whoever comes to me won't be hungry. Whoever comes to me will not be thirsty. Friends, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the good news that salvation can be found in no one else other than Jesus and in the power of his death and resurrection. Singularly focused. This is the answer to what you really need, Jesus is saying. And it's that kind of focus, it's that kind of drive, it's that kind of passion, it's that kind of intensity that has to fill every single nook and cranny of this place and every single corner of your home. And consistently and passionately keeping it the main thing. All drifting churches have something in common. They're consumed with filling bellies while ignoring the true needs of the heart. And what I mean by that, if you're following my thinking here, they're so focused, and I see this in churches, become so focused on being relevant so focused on satisfying today's cultural hungers. All these are important to us now. Satisfy us now. Make us feel good about how we believe now. Let's talk about this. And there's this drive and there's hunger to, to feed the crowds what they actually want. That's what the group was wanting. What they thought they wanted was bread. And she's like, that's not what you really want. What you want is me. But that's a temptation I see within drifting churches. We have the crowds. Let's give them what they think they want. And let's make it taste good and sound good. And everybody will cheer. And everybody will be happy. And there won't be any resistance. And everybody will praise us. And, and we get this drift. And we neglect what they really need. Let's talk about social justice. Yeah. talk about fairness. Let's talk about all these important topics, but let's not bring Jesus into it. Let's fill the belly and ignore the heart. 
Paul warned Timothy about this very thing. Because like I contended last week, even the apostles recognized Christians' proneness to drifting. And he says to Timothy, who's a young pastor, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Timothy, I'm going to give you a charge right now. And the charge is this, preach the word. Don't preach something else. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Friends, I see that today. I'm sure it's been going on since the days of Paul. But I see it today. I see that the current of secularism flows fast and it's strong. And if we don't maintain a consistent and unwavering focus on the fact that we have good news to share with the world, then we could easily get swept away in this current, and I believe many have. Um, earlier this summer, my wife's brother came to visit with his family, and they were here for a few days, and so one of the days they were here, we rented a pontoon boat at Loch, at, at Loch Lomond, and we're, we're going to have the day, we're going we're gonna to swim and tube, and we're going to do all those things, and we did, we had, we had a blast, and few hours into our, our little boating ex experience, uh, we thought we'd go swimming. Now, now, let me tell you something. I am not an expert uh, uh, pontoon boat pilot. Um, I, I don't have a lot of experience with this kind of thing, but I can steer a boat around a lake, okay? And so we found this place that was, you know, kind of out of the way. There weren't very many boats around, and it was, it was uh, peaceful. And, and so I turned off the boat, and I'm like, hey, everybody in, let's swim. And my brother-in-law's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't, don't jump in right now. He goes, we have to drop the anchor. And if I'm being honest with you, that thought never dawned on me. <laughs> and if I'm really being truthful with you, I didn't even know the pontoon boat had an anchor. All right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, good idea. And he grabbed the anchor that was at the front of the boat, and he dropped it in. And he goes, we got to put this down or the boat's going to drift away from us while we have our fun. So we dropped the anchor, and we jumped in the water, and we all had the time of our lives swimming, and the boat never got away from us because it was anchored to the bottom of the lake. Friends, the church is a lot like a boat who's been anchored to the Word of God, and it's not going to drift away when you've dropped your anchor on the Word of God. However, when we forget that we have good news to share, when we lose this focus, that we live in a world where the majority of its residents are lost, they don't know Christ, and are currently on a path that will lead them directly to hell. When we lose sight of that, when we forget that we have good news to share, it is the first step in losing your anchor. It's the first step, it's the first sign that the boat, or the church in this matter, is in danger of drifting. And I wonder, and it's questions I ask and I try to pay attention to, but how do you recognize this stuff? 
How, how do you, I mean, are there words, are there phrases, are there things that should be triggers that, that I would know when, when I'm hearing something that's really kind of adrift but it sounds good? How, how do I know? Are there telltale signs that perhaps a, a, a church or congregation has, has pulled its anchor and is drifting some? Well, we're going to get into this a lot more later into this series, but I, I would like to share this with you. I can tell you that you can recognize a church that is starting to drift when the emphasis of the good news has been replaced by a lowering of their view of the Bible. Now, now just walk with me here. When you take a congregation that has replaced their emphasis or removed their emphasis on the good news, why do they do that? They can only do that when they lower their view of the Bible. And what does the lowering view of the Bible sound like? Well, you'll hear it if you're paying attention. If you ever hear somebody say to you or you ever hear a preacher or somebody or somebody on TV or somebody in the news or somebody who says something to the effect of, you know, the Bible, that is a human book. I don't know if anybody's ever said that to you. They've said it to me. The Bible's a human book. Do you know what they're really saying by that? It's, it's a human book written by human people who are, you know, um, prone to make mistakes and prone to have opinions. And when you have the Bible that is a human book, and it's seen as a human book, not something divine or inspired, but a human book, that means there are some things in there that I don't have to follow. That really is a matter of opinions and good thoughts and good teaching, but it's human in its nature and in its origin. You might have somebody say something like this. You know what? I disagree with the Apostle Paul on that one. If you ever hear a preacher say that, it's time to close up shop and head for the door. And I'm giving you, if you ever hear me say that, I mean, you go ahead and we'll dismiss early, okay? I was visiting with a, a guy in our church after one of my sermons. This was uh, years ago in a different church. And uh, he said, I want to talk to you about your sermon. I said, okay. And we got to talking, and it was something that had to do with one scripture we were talking about the, that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he goes, you know what? I just don't think I agree with the Apostle Paul on that one. I think he's got it wrong. And I was like, sorry. I mean, that's, we don't have the luxury to say, I think he got it wrong because he's not wrong. It's the inspired word of God. And, and friends, here at New Life, we have a high view of scripture. But to say the Apostle got it wrong is a low view of scripture. The high view of Scripture. Somebody were to say to you, you know, the Bible contains the Word of God. Well, that sounds all right, doesn't it? The Bible contains the Word of God. Well, what they're also saying is the Bible also contains other things that are not. And where do you draw the line? What is and what isn't? And if you say, well, this is not necessarily the Word of God, this is something else, and I don't really have to follow that stuff. It's this de-emphasizing, it's this lowering your view of the Bible. And that's one of the many signs that there's a church that's adrift. You get there because you take your emphasis on the fact you have good news to share. Jesus told his disciples one time, be innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. The stuff we're talking about in this series is the wise as serpents part. This is having our antennas up. This is having our radar dialed in and listening and understanding. So there is a lowering of the view of the Bible to, that I see in some churches. Um, there's also this. There's an emphasis of, uh, or they, they remove their emphasis on the good news. 
by also viewing the Bible as an evolving document that is open for reinterpretation. And I've even heard preachers address this. I was uh, watching the news a few months ago. I was getting dressed and getting ready for the day, and I, some news station was on, and the news anchor had brought on two pastors to speak or to analyze and debate um, this particular topic, and I, I don't even remember exactly what they were talking about, but I do remember what one of the pastors said. He said, folks, you've got to remember something, that the Bible is an evolving document with opportunities for new revelations. I was like, are you kidding? I was mad I took my socks off and I threw it at the TV. I was like, Did you, I can't believe you just said that. But I'll tell you, in drifting churches, you find this thinking. There's a word that often gets attached with this kind of thinking. It's called progressive. You ever hear a Christian refer to progressive? It's just a code for drifting. If you can remember that, progressive and drifting are kind of synonymous with each other. That means, you know what, we're reinterpreting the scriptures. That's what progressive means. That's how people use it. The, the, the Bible is evolving, and, and it requires new interpretation. They disguise it by saying we're a progressive church. I, um, I could give you lots of examples if somebody were to say something to the fact of, um, you know what, in examining uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, you know, it doesn't have to be factually true to get good stuff from it. If anybody ever says something like, you know, you don't, you know, all the details of the Bible, it doesn't have to be exactly right, or, but, you know, you can gain some good wisdom from that. Friends, that's a telltale sign that church has pulled anchor, is in danger of drifting, and maybe it already is. Probably one of the most controversial conversations that the church is engaged with today has to do with Christianity and the LGBTQ community. It's something I'm paying very close attention to. And there are some alarming things that I'm seeing. And, um, and uh, it's, we're going to talk about it some in this series because in, uh, in many ways I think the church is, is, is heading the wrong direction on this conversation. I, I, um, I was looking at a church website not long ago and um, I realized that this church had just hired a new pastor and, um, and she was very open about being a lesbian. And so I, I began to just, you know, look into this a little bit and, um, and she had written several articles that were posted on one of the, the denomination's websites for everybody to read. And one of the articles that she wrote was to address a question. And the question was, what are you going to tell Christians who believe that the Bible says homosexuality is a sin? What, what, what do you say to that? And basically, if I could just sum up what she wrote about, she said this. Um, the sexual and moral code of the Bible is from another time and another culture. Can I tell you what she really is trying to communicate with this? And I'm, I'm confident in all sincerity she's communicating this. Is that because the Bible was written several thousand years ago. And it was written in another part of the world. Then obviously it cannot apply to me. So I'm going to do what I want to do. 
and I, I hear these kind of discussions, I read these discussions all the time, and if somebody ever says to you that, you know, the historic position on sexuality in the church and the Bible is archaic and it needs to be viewed and updated through a modern context, friends, I'm going to tell you, that is a sign that the anchor is up and the church is adrift. There's lots of examples that I could tell you, but I'm going to leave you with this. Here is the bottom line. Christ is the difference. Christ is the difference. And we must never forget that we right here at New Life Christian Church, and you yourself individually, who are a part of this church, you have good news to share. And if we stay focused on that as a church, and you stay focused on the fact that God gives us opportunities all the time to share this good news with others, then it's going to be really hard for us to pull our anchor off of God's word. Christ is the difference. Can we pray together about some of these things? If you would, just bow your head and close your eyes, and I'd like to lead you just in a brief time of prayer, and I would like to prompt you to pray for a few things, and you pray for them in your own words. I'll, I'll just prompt you a little bit, but would you pray right now and ask God to protect this congregation? Protect this congregation from drifting, because we are not going to stand up here and arrogantly say, well, that's never going to happen to us. But with God's help, and with a continued focus on good news to share, we will stay anchored to the truth. And would you pray for our church's protection right now? Would you also pray right now for maybe some Christians you might know or some other churches that have just taken this progressive path and maybe they pulled their... Would you pray for them to come back? To recognize that God, through His Spirit, would help them recognize that it's the gospel. It's the bread of life. That's what people really need. And that is the cure to every one of these world's issues. Would you pray for that? Would you also pray for our friends, our neighbors, those in our community who, who right now don't know Jesus? They don't have a personal relationship with their Heavenly Father. And if things don't change, they're on the path to destruction. Would you pray, even by name, that God might give you opportunity to share the good news, even today? Finally, would you pray that God would make this place a beacon for hope, a beacon of truth, and that in a world that is hungry for truth, that they will find the very truth here in Jesus Christ. Would you pray that God would always make this place the place that draws all men unto the name of Jesus Christ?